today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Good news. Good news for the hammer. Uh, the LRT uh, train is going to continue to move ahead, uh, announced yesterday after a meeting between Mayor Fred Eisenberger and Minister Jeff Yurick. Uh, here's uh, a little bit of what everyone had to say. We're going to start with Jeff Yurick confirms that the province is going to lift a freeze on land acquisitions along the LRT. That's right. Uh, if uh, the land freeze is lifted, which it is, uh, the RFP is extended, so uh, developers can have the opportunity to bid on the project, which we hope come in in due, due time. And uh, the government is standing by Premier Forbes' commitment of a billion dollars uh, uh, for this project. Keenan Loomis said yesterday's announcement in support of the project by the Ontario Transportation Minister just provides the certainty and reassurance we need. To be able to survive a, a new government, um, and uh, and get their uh, in- embracement of this project was hugely significant, and I don't think that we are going to have anything um, nearly as uh, as as difficult to overcome into the future. Let's bring in Chris Jacobson, acting LRT project director for the city of Hamilton, and is with us now. Chris, thanks for the time; much appreciated. Not a problem. Anytime. A big sigh of relief in the office today. <laughs> Yeah, big sigh of relief for sure. Uh, having that certainty moving forward is uh, is definitely uh, something we need in order to uh, ensure that we uh, can deliver this project for the city. So full steam ahead with LRT. Uh, does this answer all the questions that the mayor had? Absolutely, yeah. We, we needed a, a strong indication from the provincial government as to where we were going with the project, and I think we got that yesterday. So uh, very much appreciative of the minister taking the time to come down and visit Hamilton yesterday and deliver that good news. Uh, any reason to think uh, plans will change or anything will be altered before this gets to completion? Well, you never know. Uh, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, we, we, we know the direction that we're heading down now. Uh, we know what it is that we need to do, but uh, you know you can speculate on on things jumping up uh, and possibly uh, creating uh, other debate. But for now, uh, we have our direction and, and we're sticking to that. Uh, there's been rumors floating around the media for uh, the last couple of weeks about various other projects that have been scaled back. You're not concerned about that at this point. At this point in time, no. I mean, I think the key uh, for everyone who has those concerns is let's get through this bid process. Yeah. You know, until we get to the end of the bid process and we actually see what the bids come back in at, and, and most people are speculating around potential cost overruns, we can only speculate on that right now. Right now, we think we have a project that can come in uh, at the, the funding that's been committed. Uh, if we go down the road and we identify that, yeah, maybe there is a cost overrun, we'll deal with it at that time. But uh, until we get those bids in, it's all speculation at this point. Uh, has this delayed the project in any means? Well, first of all, may- maybe for those that don't know, you should clarify what has happened here. Obviously, this was in regards to the purchase of land and such, and we seem to be put on pause for a bit. Uh, start with what happened yesterday and then move backwards. So, so yesterday we got a, a commitment, a recommitment from the uh, uh from the, the province uh, around the, the funding for the project, uh, as well as a, a reinitiation of the uh, proper, uh, property purchasing uh, along the corridor. So back in uh, June, I believe it was, the, the province uh, put a province-wide spending freeze on discretionary spending, uh, which impacted our project and in particular uh, impacted the property purchasing. Uh, so we haven't been pro- uh, purchasing property on the corridor for hmm, about the last eight months or so. So that's definitely slowed uh, our progress. 
Uh, and also, uh, we're in the midst of a RFP process. So there are three qualified teams that are out there taking a look at the uh, uh, at the project and trying to figure out the best way in which to deliver the project. So with all the uncertainty surrounding property purchases and, and funding, uh, those bid teams slowed their progress on actually developing their bid. So uh, though those bids were initially expected to be submitted to uh, the province uh, towards the end of this month, uh, sometime in, in April. Uh, however, that uh, process is going to have to be extended out now. And this uh, this pause here uh, in, in land acquisition and such that was not really directly related to the LRT project. That was a province wide thing. Well, the duck, well, the government figured out, uh, got all their ducks in a row and figured out what was going on. Yeah, correct. That that's our understanding. Yeah, uh, has this? Uh, how much has this? You touched on delaying the projects. How much has this delayed the project? So I guess we don't really know just yet. So with the news that we received yesterday, uh, we'll need to go back out with our partners at uh, Metrolinx and talk to the bid teams, see exactly where they're at uh, with the development of their bids, uh, and figure out um, you know how much more time do they need in order to put in a, a good solid bid. The last thing we want to do at this point in time is rush the bidders. Mm. Uh, as you can appreciate, this is a uh, uh, an incredibly complex project uh, in setting an arbitrary date uh, for them to. Uh, submit their bids without truly understanding exactly how much time they need would would be, um, well, quite frankly, somewhat silly on our part. So we need to have those conversations. We need to understand exactly where they're at, how much time they need, and then we can uh, put together a a more firm schedule around uh, where does that take us. Uh, You talked about, uh, you know, the $1 billion budget and and, uh, it possibly going beyond that. Tough to do until you get all of these bids in for it. Any reason to believe that this little delay will have cost us anymore? Eh, that's hard to say. Um, no, I, I can't really uh, look at it and say that, yes, the delay causes uh, or costs us uh, anything at this point in time beyond time. You know, time's always a factor for us, and, and as, you know, the, the longer you go, the, the cost of, of everything increases. It never decreases over time, so uh, you could take a look and, and say that the delay would potentially uh, increase uh, construction costs, but the delay hasn't been that significant mm. to, uh, to drive costs uh, much higher, so it's really more a time issue for us, and it is a cost issue. All right, so uh, I know you've touched on this, but uh, again, for us that are watching all of this uh, happen in front of us, uh, what is the, what are the next steps? What happens now that this wheel is back in motion? Yeah, so the, the, the next steps are to continue the bid process, so making sure that we get uh, uh, successful bids in from the, from the three teams. Again, how long that's going to take will be determined over the course of the next few weeks after we have the uh, discussions with the bidders. Uh, and then at that point, we will have a, a firm understanding of not just the, the capital cost of construction, uh, but also the future operating and maintenance maintenance costs, which ultimately the city uh, is responsible for a portion of. Uh, and then we would have to take those numbers, go back to council uh, with an operations and maintenance agreement and uh, seek their approval to uh, to move forward. It must be an incredibly complex process to go through three different bid processes and, and figure out exactly, especially with all of them being, I would guess, a little bit different in what they can offer, uh, how you decide the final one to pick. Uh, no question. It's incredibly complex. Uh, and it's not just the capital. Yeah, how uh, much it costs. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, 30, 30 years of, of operations and maintenance as well. So layer all of that in uh, with three bid teams who have different perspectives on how they could deliver this project. And yeah, the evaluation gets uh, pretty complex. 
So as this move for as this moves forward, do you see any more stalls in the immediate future or anything to to uh, as the city loves to do question this thing over and over again? No, I, I think the uh, the direction yesterday w- was firm by the province, uh, and that's all we were really looking for uh, was that firm uh, direction, that green light to say, uh, go ahead and get this done. So uh, there's nothing that we see on the horizon. Uh, that's not to suggest that something doesn't pop up at some point in time, but uh, based on what we know right now, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, as you said, uh, full steam ahead. What's the buzz around City Hall with this news yesterday? Uh, positive for sure. Uh, you know, you take a look at uh, you know the people who are involved in this project. You know, our team, uh, our, our joint team, us at, in Metrolinks, who have been dealing with this uncertainty for the last number of months. Not really sure. You know, are we going forward? Are we not going forward? Uh, you know, when are we going to get the news? Uh, I, I think there was uh, uh, some relief yesterday uh, with the announcement uh, on the part of staff and just in, in general throughout the city. What would you say to those Hamiltonians that are still not convinced of this project? <laughs> I, I guess I'd say stick around. <laughs> Let's see where it goes. And, uh, you know, we're, we're quite willing to, to have those discussions and have those debates because, quite frankly, at the end of the day, it's actually a good thing that we, we have uh, people who have a, an opposing uh, viewpoint to, to the project because it makes our project stronger at it's, the end of the day. It certainly would appear, though, as time has gone by, and thank goodness <laughs> now with this decision, that the naysayers have fallen by the wayside. It seems to be pretty positive, doesn't it? Well, yeah, it does. It's getting there. But, but you know, from, from our perspective, it's always good to have an opposing viewpoint. It's always good to have people who have a, a contrary position because it forces us to take a look at the project through a different, a different lens. Uh, and ultimately, that results in a, in a better, stronger project overall. How concerned are you about, because uh, it's sort of the calm before the storm, before everything starts getting torn up in the construction phase of all of this? Do you think the city's just going to be hotter than hell when, once that starts happening? So, yeah, we've, we've never shied away from the fact that once we start construction, it's going to be messy. I mean, this is a, a, an incredibly complex project uh, with all sorts of different services that have to be relocated uh, throughout a very narrow, very tight corridor. Um, managing that, scheduling that, phasing that is, is going to be a challenge. Uh, moving around uh, in that zone or adjacent to that zone is, is going to be a challenge. Uh, but it's going to be up to us to make sure that we have plans in place to, to most importantly, communicate with people what's happening, when it's happening, what types of delays to expect during construction so that people can make informed decisions about how they travel in this city. So, but we will never say that it's going to be smooth sailing during construction. That's impossible. It's just uh, it, it's going to be uh, messy. Uh, we just hope that everybody uh, is willing to work with us while we uh, we get this project complete. When do shovels hit ground? Does this delay uh, affect that in any way? You said you're not sure at this point. Yeah, it's tough to say again until we have a, uh, an opportunity to discuss the uh, the whole bid process with the uh, the bid teams. Uh, we won't necessarily know exactly when construction would start. Uh, I think most likely 2020 is a the earliest uh, construction would start, and probably mid to later 2020 would be a construction start. But again, until we have those discussions, uh, it's really hard to, uh, uh, to, to put a time frame on it. Chris Jacobson is with us, acting LRT project director for the city of Hamilton. Good news yesterday from uh, Minister Jeff Urich that uh, the land acquisition and such can go ahead and the LRT is moving. Chris, thanks so much for the time and insight. Good luck. No problem. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1,500 jobs lost at the Chrysler plant in Windsor. Uh, the auto industry, what kind of shape is it in Ontario? Man, at one time we were boasting about it, uh, you know, a decade or so ago, how, how big it was. And, I, and if I'm, I will have to ask our guests on this, but I think at one point we were producing more cars in Ontario than they were in Michigan. Uh, to talk all about this, Greg Mordew is with us, McMaster, ArcelorMittal, DeFasco Chair in Advanced Manufacturing uh, Policy, and is with us now. Greg, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Glad to be here. Uh, first GM, now Chrysler. I don't know. What does this look like? Uh, if people are starting to get a little scared that this is it for Ontario and uh, the auto industry. What can you share with us? Well, I think um, I think the natural inclination is for people to say, oh, Oshawa is, uh, happened in uh, November, December time frame and will manifest itself later this year. Now here's Windsor. It's the same thing all over again. And they really aren't. Um, obviously, they're, they're linked by the fact that they're auto in, it's the auto industry in Ontario. And the auto industry in Ontario is competing uh, or trying to compete with the, with the uh, manufacturing industries in low-cost places like Mexico. So therefore, this must be uh, part and parcel of the same story. And it's really not. I mean, Oshawa was all it was framed as a conversation and discussion and a decision about a about lack of demand for a particular type of product in other words sedans but the reality is Oshawa was a uh, was a high cost outlier that uh, that that General Motors was trying to figure out what to do with uh, for a long time and they finally announce something. In fact, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, to and fro and huffing and puffing about Oshawa closing down, but the reality is they made uh, 67,000 vehicles in Oshawa last year in a facility that made a million vehicles, you know, a decade or a decade and a half ago. So it was uh, on its uh, deathbed for a long time. Windsor's different. I mean, Windsor is uh, has been, make, has been making uh, minivans, for a long time, and it's been making minivans for a long time on a three on a three uh, shift operation, and three shift operations in the auto industry are really hard hmm. because it doesn't it doesn't give you time to properly and effectively uh, um, do uh, preventative maintenance and all the other types of things that you need to be able to run an operation. But they found a way, and to their credit, found a way to uh, to to make that facility into a three shift operation in other words running just about 24 hours a day for a long time and uh and when the because they thought that that was the best way to go about it when the uh, when the uh, industry was hot and the demand for the types of vehicles that they were building was uh, was hot and uh, it's the, the what they're building pacifica minivans and grand caravans are now not so hot and they've pulled back. They're going to pull back to a second shift, and uh, and I don't know if it was an in- inevitable, but uh, and, and I don't want to discount the uh, 1,500 jobs that are being displaced. But uh, what they did, they did for a long time that that very few other operations do, which is run that third shift. So uh, the loss of the third shift doesn't necessarily mean loss of the first and second. I don't think so. I mean, they have just spent an enormous amount of money to retool that uh, facility to do what it needs to do. And uh, and so I don't think my sense is that, that it, it's pretty solid as, as shifts one and two. And uh, the, the challenge that they have right now is uh, 
they're building Dodge Grand Caravans that uh, have uh, been on their last legs for a long time in a tough market, and uh, and they're also building Pacificas, which are good, which are a very good product, but they're relatively high priced, and uh, and the the market is saying, yeah, we're not so sure about uh, minivans. We'd like to see more SUVs. So that's why they've been pulled back. And they're, they're you know, frankly, they're at this more sustainable level at, uh, at, at at two shifts, building Pacificas and Grand Caravans. My understanding is that they're looking at a uh, at, at other products for there, not the least of which, uh, in, over the short to intermediate term, is an all-wheel drive version of the Pacifica, which uh, which the market is saying that it wants. Uh, do you think this will be permanent, the loss of the third shift? Because, again, as a family that just got rid of their minivan, and I think we had three <laughs> over the course of uh, uh, raising the family, uh, you know, e- even going into an SUV-type hybrid thing, they still do not have the room of a minivan. They're still an incredible vehicle, which is why they, I guess, have lasted so long. Do you think this being permanent? Uh, I think it's permanent. I uh, I don't think that they would go through the uh, yeah. the challenges associated with uh, with releasing fifteen hundred skilled people, and they are skilled people. If they just thought that they'd be able yeah. to bring those fifteen hundred skilled people back on the and uh, turn it on a dime, I, I think it's permanent. So is and, this and less it's about? A long, it's it's, a, it's sorry. Yeah. It's a long. Uh, it's a long process that they're going through now in order to give efficient, sufficient notification in order to be able to uh, to uh, release those people. And as you said, I mean, uh, more and more are becoming interested in some sort of SUV hybrid thing. Uh, that being said, it sounds like they were really cranking these things out like a sausage factory. I mean, they were really producing these. They were extremely popular. So it doesn't necessarily mean a softening of the product, does it, or, or even those other shifts? Well... The um, the market is 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 drifting downward for minivans, um, and they've had a big chunk of that market for a long time. And uh, they made three hundred thousand of those between Pacificas and uh, Grand Caravans last year. And so, I I, I don't get the sense that uh, that um, that FCA is uh, is uh, contemplating anything other than moving this to a two shift operation. Um, and they'll continue to look at other product. as they'll have to, and, 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 and frankly, Chrysler or FCA Canada will have to compete for those mandates, just like uh, like uh, they've always had to do. I mean, they've had a good, good long run of it. They yeah. <clears throat> they started building those vehicles back in the 80s, like the, the first minivan, and uh, and, and frankly, the uh, the then United Auto Workers weren't very happy with it. The uh, government of Canada weren't very happy with uh, with with the product that they were given in there as a as a fallout from uh, from what was happening in uh, in the industry and in Chrysler at that time. Mm. They didn't know what is this what is this thing a minivan? I've never heard of a minivan <laughs> yeah. before. What the heck is that? And uh, they've had a good long run of it. They've had over thirty years of of of, of uh, good production and uh and this is a hiccup for them uh chatter that michigan investing in in uh the chrysler investing in a michigan plant this week as well yeah they've they've made a a a major announcement about uh, about new products in michigan and new products for other plants as well um you know we'll wait and see what if uh, anything happens for uh for uh, when they you know these things are 
you know, there's a lot that goes into uh, an announcement of a new product. I mean, everything has to line up. You're not not the least of which is your relationship with labor. You have to have a have a, a good, strong relationship with your local and uh, and provincial and national government. Um, you have to uh, keep your eye on what's happening in the U.S. and do I make an announcement in Canada and what happens in the U.S. if I make an announcement in Canada and mm. how does uh, Mr. Trump respond to that and, and 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 do I want to deal with that? Am I prepared to deal with that? What kind of uh, what kind of incentive package is available in this jurisdiction versus another? And uh, am I going to be able to find the qualified labor that I need to be able to launch this product when I need to launch it? And do I really want to announce a, a, a particular product for a particular plant when I haven't, uh, when the product that I want to put in that plant or may want to put in that plant is going to uh, cannibalize or replace an existing product that I also have in my lineup that I need to squeeze out a couple more years of production out of. So it gets pretty complex, and it's a, it, it, it's a balancing act. So at some point in time, we'll be looking for a, 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 a another announcement about Windsor. At some point in time, that we'll be looking to FCA for another announcement about what and whether they're going to do anything with their Brampton facility. So... Uh, any word of the Brampton facility, considering what has happened in Windsor? Any reason to think something? May, any reason to think something may happen there? Um, at some point in time, they'll have to make a decision about Brampton. I mean, they keep they they keep kicking the can down the road and and making modest announcements about what they're going to do about Brampton in terms of uh, the facility and the paint shop. And paint shops are expensive things to build. And do you want to build a paint shop in the middle of a of a of a of a built up area? I mean, I've even heard people saying, "Oh, they'll just uh, want to close it down because because." It's expensive property or expensive land in the middle of Brampton. But the reality is, I mean, FCA is not a property developer. They're a car maker. Mm. And FCA will make cars in the facilities that they think are the best equipped to make cars at the particular point in time. They're not interested in uh, in bulldozing a piece of property and uh, and putting a shopping center and uh, housing and uh, IKEAs. You talked about the financial uh, climate. I, I, Ontario competitive with the United States? Are we still competitive with Michigan? Um, we're competitive with uh, the U.S. We're competitive. We're very competitive with Michigan. I, I think we still make uh, a few more cars than Michigan. We're hanging mm-hmm. on to that. We did last year. Um, but there is a general trend to uh, to build vehicles in less costly places and it doesn't happen overnight because as I described everything has to line up perfectly you know do I have enough people to launch this new plant that I'm thinking of, of, of building do I have do I do it you know everything has to line up well and so the easiest decision is to say well let's just make what we've been building in our existing facility upgrade that facility and carry on that's the easiest decision so if you were making a decision purely on the basis of cost one day versus another frankly the industry would close down pretty quickly but every but it happens over a long period of time 
And in 2000, for example, we made 3 million vehicles in Canada, and we've been talking about this long, slow decline of the industry. But the reality is, last year we made about 2.3 million in Canada. So it hasn't it hasn't been this precipitous drop-off that, that, that some people are talking about. It takes a long time to happen. But the reality is, we're not getting a lot of new stuff. And uh, Mexico, for example, is the low-cost option in, in the region. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they, they have gotten a lot of new stuff. They're getting less new stuff uh, today because of the uh, machinations that happen in the uh, grumbling and rolling over that happens in Washington when uh, new investments are, are made in um, Mexico. So that's kind of on hold right now. But over the last... 20 or 15 or 20 years or so, we've gone from 80% of the world's uh, vehicles made in the richest countries to about 40% today. Mm. And so you can see that, the, 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 and that's mostly a result of the poorer countries making more and less about the, uh, the, the rich countries making, you know, making fewer. So it, it, it's pretty flat. Uh, loss of the third shift at the Chrysler plant in Windsor will. Uh, how much of effect will that have? Rippling effect will that have on the auto sector in, in other areas of the province? Um, depends on supplier really such. The, the, uh, the, uh, the work that I've done shows about a seven to one, and it's pretty normal for you know seven assembly plant jobs create seven jobs in the supplier community um, in, in 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 Canada. Um, Windsor will be a little bit different. It might not be seven in Canada because a lot of the, uh, the this is a very very much a just in time um, um, industry. So if you're in Cambridge or you're in uh, Woodstock or Brampton, your supply base is going to be you're going to have a, a slightly more of your supply base proximate in uh, in Canada. If you're in Windsor, you're going to have a lot of your a lot of your suppliers are going to be not all of them but some of them, a lot of your suppliers are going to be across the border so you know there will be a an impact in Windsor there may be an impact up the 401 a bit there probably won't be a huge impact in um, as you get up you know Hamilton how does this affect Hamilton steel industry i you know honestly you'd have to talk to uh, to uh, to the steelmakers because I'm not sure if uh, it, what the extent to which uh, ArcelorMittal DeFasco or uh, or Stelco provides steel to uh, to the uh, the facility in Windsor. Um, I suspect uh, I mean they're all over the place. I suspect it has some impact, but you have to talk to them. Uh, getting back to the GM story, uh, Jerry Diaz, the union president, was saying a, a week or two ago that there was some rumblings about other uses for the GM plant. Have you heard anything on that? Uh, I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot of space there, um, but the uh, did he allude to something there, coming back in? Not go- there, there's certainly not going to be a major um, assembly plant announcement yeah. i suspect my suspicions and, and, and are that gm will uh, will will use the facility or use some of the facility or may position some of, or try to position some of the facility to do some um, vehicle testing but there will not be 20,000 people employed there like there was uh, 20 years ago there might be a few dozen. I, I mean, I just don't know what they're planning or contemplating right now. 
but uh, or what they're doing to uh, to, to to placate uh, um, Mr. Diaz and and, and, and and his membership, but it's not going to be anything to uh, to replace the type of of, 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 of labor profile that uh, that it has had up to and including right now. Uh, and, and Greg, you were mentioning earlier that. Uh, uh, um that uh, Fiat Chrysler isn't interested in bulldozing and and being land developers and such. That being said, the Oshawa plant, where it sits, a, not, a massive piece of property. Do you see that happening there? Eventually, they'll 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 need to do something. I mean, eventually. I mean, this happens to all those plants. I mean, Chrysler had a plant that uh, that they eventually bulldozed in uh, in Windsor. The uh, the Ford has a plant in St. Thomas. I mean, eventually you don't want to have these monuments to uh, abandon industrial prowess uh, sitting on your landscape forever. And eventually you want to move on. And uh, Ford wanted to wanted to move on, and GM will want to move on, and uh, and that property will be, I would assume, redeveloped at some point in time. It it is unlikely that it will be redeveloped for an automotive. Uh, um, assembly plant, and uh, I mean, I just can't imagine a scenario where where they would uh, where they would uh, back down from from what they announced in November. Greg Mardu has been with us, McMaster's Arcelor uh, Middle DeFasco Chair in Advanced Manufacturing Policy. Greg, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. National Public Radio says that the majority of Americans are wanting the Mueller report to be re- uh, to be released in full, uh, and for both Mueller and Barr to speak, the Attorney General to speak uh, before Congress. Now, of course, this has taken, I guess, two years for this to be assembled, and in the end. Uh, we got a four-page summary from the Attorney General. Um, that's obviously not enough for the people of the United States. Here's what the President had to say on all of this. This was nothing more than a sinister effort to undermine our historic election victory and to sabotage the will of the American people. All right, let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News based in Washington. He is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. So how is all of this being digested in uh, Washington? Obviously, two years Mueller spent doing this and then four pages of a report from the Attorney General uh, Barr. Is that enough to keep Washington and Americans happy? Uh, no, absolutely not. And we've heard from uh, numerous Democrats over the last week or so uh, basically saying that the information that was handed uh, handed out to the public by the Attorney General uh, was simply a summary that, uh, that in the words of the uh, uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi saying, no, thank you, Mr. Barr. These are words that she believes uh, were simply uh, kind of put forth, skimming over the potentially 300-plus pages that Robert Mueller gave in uh, as his report. So Democrats are saying, look, if there's information that was missing, if Mr. Barr kind of put the four pages out there when there's hundreds of pages of information that he's deciding not to put into his summary. We need to see what that is right now. So now there's conversations going forward of how do we get this report put in the public? Do we put a subpoena forward? Do we put subpoenas forward to have people come and testify? So that's what Democrats are trying to grapple with right now as the White House continues these victory laps. 
how much how much will Americans see? I mean, will is there a way, a means for them to actually see this? And if it is released, how much of it will be redacted? Well, the attorney general has already said that he intends over the next couple of weeks to start releasing more of this report. It's just uh, unclear whether or not he's going to be releasing all of it or portions of it or how much of it's actually going to be redacted, how much the White House is going to try to assert executive privilege on. And that's where the concerns and questions are coming from the Democrats by saying, look, when the Republicans were fully in power, they would put comment uh, requests into the Justice Department for information and it would be handed over basically at a second's notice, whereas the Democrats are now kind of running through these hoops and circles. So there is a possibility that what William Barr decides to put forward could be significantly less than what he was handed by Robert Mueller. And that's where Democrats are basically saying, look, we have the power to try and get as much information as you can. You might want to try to do this uh, you know, without any kind of big fights. The other thing we have to remember is there are things like grand jury, uh, grand jury indictments and information that need to be kept secret. That could be redacted. But again, Democrats could put the power of subpoena forward to say, look, if there's going to be anything redacted from this, we're just going to go after it and we're going to try to get it all on the table. Uh, what are the chances? Or First of all, let me ask you this. Does, how much input does Donald Trump have on what we see of this report? Well, the, the president has basically left it up to the attorney general saying, I trust him. He says that he's going to be releasing things. You know, I want things released. So he's kind of putting the power to the attorney general. The president himself does have the power to uh, assert executive privilege and, and blank out things that he doesn't want the public to see. He may claim, uh, you know, issues of national security with certain parts of the Mueller investigation. So the White House is going to have a little bit of say as to what might not be public in a publicized report. Outside of that, he's left it to the Justice Department to say, you do what you think is proper. Just remember that the person who leads the Justice Department is a Trump appointee. Uh, what are the chances that we'll see Mueller or Barr testify before Congress on this? So there was already question and comment from the Democrats saying, if we're not going to get anything put forward or if we're going to get kind of redacted or simplified versions put forward, we're going to need to speak to the people who are in charge of this. And William Barr has already said that he does fully intend to uh, come and speak and testify to Congress uh, when he's called. That could likely be sometime towards the middle of April when he decides to step forward. Robert Mueller, they haven't officially asked for him to come and speak yet, but uh, it, there, the people in his office and people closest to him said that he would be willing to come and speak if Congress you know, asks for him to come forward. So there, once we get these two men in front of Congress under oath, that's where we kind of can start to draw the lines to say, well, whose story differs from whose uh, when they're commenting on things that have either been redacted or simply not put public. Considering that Mueller has said that uh, there's nothing in his mind that, that, that's criminal, perhaps, uh, you know, like it doesn't necessarily exonerate, but not criminal. Uh, that being said, when this is released, what are the chances of us finding out anything more than we don't already know about this? Just more ugly examples of. Well, there there is possibilities for us to learn a whole bunch of things if this actually comes to the public eye, and that could be part of the reason why it hasn't been fully released as of yet. Well, we've already heard from what the Attorney General has, has summarized, that there was no collusion with Russia, that despite the fact that Russians were approaching numerous members of the Trump campaign at the time, uh, that they were turning down any kind of help Russia was offering. That's what we've heard from the summary. When it comes to uh, questions of obstruction, the summary basically pulled a line from that report saying that the president, while he didn't commit a crime, he wasn't exonerated either. And that's where questions of, well, what could potentially not be exonerating the president? So if this comes to light, you know, remember, there's 300 plus pages here, maybe less than a thousand. That gives 
ample opportunities for people to comb through and say, well, look, this this behavior, you know, that the president might be associated with could be considered obstruction in a light. That's why Mueller decided not to exonerate him. That's why the attorney general decided to step in and make his own assertions as to how the president uh, was was, uh, you know, potentially obstructing justice when it comes to this investigation. So there are a handful of things that we could learn from this report if and when it's made public. Again, it's all a matter of what pages are out there and what happens to be said when these men come to testify. So uh, how big a win is this for Donald Trump? Is it a win for Donald Trump? As you said, they're certainly selling it that way. Well, it's a 50-50 win. I mean, he's already been vindicated partially by this uh, summary, basically saying that uh, that there was no collusion with Russia. And he's been running with that for the last couple of days, basically saying, look, I've been vindicated right now. He's a little off script when he says something along the lines of I've been totally and 100 percent exonerated, because even from the attorney general's summary, uh, those are the words that aren't used. He hasn't been 100 percent exonerated. Uh, nonetheless, the victory laps continue. The president was in Michigan last night for his first campaign style rally, uh, basically in the days after this. Summary was released saying, Look, the Mueller report's out there. I've been exonerated. I didn't collude. I didn't obstruct justice. This is what, you know, your Justice Department is saying about your president right now. The crowd was going wild. The problem was is that the president wasn't being truthful with the crowd in front of him. But as we've seen month after month after year, that 40% of people who support Donald Trump, no matter what, will latch on to whatever he has to say and take that as Bible. Uh, He actually said at one point, no president should have to be treated this way. How do you think that flies? Uh, Because clearly um, Americans still want to know more. Absolutely. And and it's it's almost hypocritical for the president to say that no president should ever be treated like this again, because you have to remember that there was a gigantic investigation that went on into Bill Clinton in the 1990s that led to the impeachment of the president at the time. And and the president now has nothing but terrible things to say about the Clintons, both Hillary and Bill, and, and has never once said that the investigation into Bill Clinton shouldn't have happened. And if there was a Democratic president in place, you can imagine that the Republicans and likely Donald Trump down the line, if something were to go wrong, would be calling for these kind of special investigations to continue. So it's one thing for one party to say something and one thing for them to mean something else. Uh, That being said, you know, will this happen to another president? It's very possible. I mean, anybody can get themselves into any kind of trouble at any point in their uh, official career. So, you know, it's just it's just one of those things that the president likes to say uh, because it makes him look good in the eyes of the people that could vote him in. Um, since the attorney general has released the four-page summary of, of the Mueller report, what does that do for pardons for some of the people, some of uh, Trump's closest past allies that uh, have found themselves in jail? Well, the president has been asked numerous times how he feels about pardons, if he intends to be pardoning anybody. And and his constant line is, well, I haven't been discussing pardons. I haven't talked about that with my people yet. Uh, that said, over the last couple of days, the comment of pardons have come up, uh, particularly with, uh, with the name Roger Stone and potentially Paul Manafort. And the president said that, well, look, people got caught up into this, converse, into this investigation and they were treated badly and they were treated poorly. And these people were at one time very close and in line with the president. So he potentially could be changing his tune. So remember, these are federal investigations that were taking place, and the president has the ability to pardon anybody who was convicted of or linked to a federal crime. So we'll see what happens down the road if he decides to do this. Uh, There are a number of state investigations that are going on, however, including through New York and Virginia and Washington, D.C. The president doesn't have any kind of say to pardon somebody caught up and convicted into a state-level investigation. So if he does a federal one, that's one thing, but these people could be convicted and retried and put back in jail. 
uh, if if that's what happens with, at the state level and he can't get involved in that. Uh, obviously, this has been such a divisive issue for the United States. Uh, now that the report, uh, well, at least we've got a summary of it, if and when the report is finally released, will it change any of that? Or, you know, because, again, there doesn't seem to be enough uh, evidence to convict beyond a reasonable doubt. So in the end, will this remain the same? Those that, that bought into it will buy into it. Those that don't, that don't. Are we any farther ahead? That's how this country has been running for the last two years right now. The dividing line is pretty much cemented where it is right now. 40% or around 40% are always going to follow along with Donald Trump. They're the people who put him in power. Uh, There's a lot of uh, independents and Democrats who could be potentially waffling right now based on what happens, what does come out eventually if it comes out with this report. Uh, The Democrats are the ones who are going to need to pay attention to this going forward because heading into an election season, uh, Democrats really need to walk that line as to whether or not they're going to focus solely on Trump and this investigation that was happening around Trump or focus on uh, core issues that, that their electorate uh, are, are likely more interested in, things like national security or health care or health insurance. Uh, these are things that the that Democrats need to pay attention to, because if they focus too much solely on Trump, if they focus too much on this investigation with or without the information coming forward, uh, it could potentially look like a sour grape situation. So the Democrats have more to lose on this going forward than the Republicans do. Interesting. Has, so has the tide turned for Donald Trump? Is he on a roll now? Well, I mean, he's trying to change the narrative uh, as quickly as he can. He was kind of running with the win or his his uh, perceived win from this report earlier in the week. Over the last couple of days, he's really put the health care uh, uh, situation in the U.S. back to the forefront, and he's trying to run on saying that the Republicans are going to be known as the party of health care. Uh, within the last couple of hours, he's really taken it to Mexico, trying to say that if the Mexicans don't control what's happening at the border, uh, he intends to shut down the Mexican border uh, next week. He's trying to deal with trade issues. Right now, both with USMCA and with Mexico. So the president trying to not focus on one thing is trying to kind of drum all of the election issues back up together. This could be something that starts to lift him. His numbers have started to increase over the last couple of days. He's up to an over 40 percent. So if he's able to continue on this role, this could be a a big battle for for the Democrats going forward. Uh, I guess this all depends on what we see and when we see uh, the actual Mueller report. Could he be setting himself up for a fall? You know, oh, yeah, it's been great. A four page summary and I'm off the hook. Everything's great. And then once we eventually find, you know, we eventually get the information that things will be greatly different, or again, is it just so gray now that it won't matter? Well, look, this gray area that we're in always kind of, you know, it's, it's different shades of gray without being black and white, but yeah. what infor- uh, whatever information does happen to come out over the next couple of days, weeks, months, possibly years, could eventually have an impact, but we may not see this uh, full report. The Attorney General might decide, I'm not going to put this full report out until something maybe after the president's been reelected, where it doesn't interfere with another potential uh, election campaign. So there are potential timelines for how this is released going forward, uh, but that's why you're going to see the Democrats nipping at their heels constantly, saying, we want this information now. We can use it uh, along with election issues to try and say, this is why the Republicans need to be taken out of power. So there is information in there that could affect the president going forward and both sides are either going to try to hide it or fight against it uh last question before we're out of here uh the the president commented on the the situation with jesse smollett and what's happened in chicago and those charges being dropped how does that resonate in washington 
Well, I mean, the president, you know, has always said that this investigation was uh, was partly flawed because it kind of implicated uh, people that are close to the president by saying these were two potentially, uh, you know, MAGA supporting people who who went after Jesse Smollett, and he's kind of been riding against that for the last couple of days, saying our people would never do that. This investigation needs to be looked at better. He's had hate on for Chicago in the past, based on their gun violence and based on uh, the mayor and the mayor having ties to Barack Obama. So the president did pay close attention to this. He's got his Justice Department uh, potentially looking into this now. He has a new, or he's asking that the FBI take a, a new look at this investigation. This is just something that he can use on the campaign trail, not something to go after the Democrats, but basically to say, look, this investigation uh, appears to have been flawed on Chicago police part and Chicago's uh, district attorney part. I'm going to get my Justice Department to, to do a better investigation into this hmm. to try and just drum people up to say, look, these are things that are happening in the U.S. and I'm trying to assert my power to make sure that they don't happen again. Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News based in Washington. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, sir. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.